Well, good morning. It's fun to travel around our land and see the shadow, the marvelous shadow that this ministry casts upon the people of our land. It is just simply glorious to see what God is doing in our midst. May I encourage the administration and the faculty and the staff, your presence is being felt around America. Praise God for this place. It is just a joy to be back with you. I, I, when I was the director of missions here at uh, Liberty in 1995, and for the five years my wife Sterling and I were here serving, I used to travel around the campus and I would beg God and ask God to give us a tithe of our students to the nations. And I would just say, Lord, would you be pleased at a minimum to take 10% of the men and the women that you bring here and send them forth to the nations? And, and I believe that not only has been answered, but is being answered. And it's pretty cool, isn't it, when you come together in a convocation like this and you see all the flags of the peoples of the world, we're reminded, aren't we, that our citizenship ultimately is with the king and the kingdom to come. And we serve a glorious master, don't we? And I love the, the theme that you've, you've commended to yourself for this week. I hope throughout the week you've been conversing together on this idea of rescue. Rescue who? From what? Why? How? What a great theme. What, what, a, what a neat topic for we as followers of Jesus you know, we, we live in this real globalized community now, don't we? With the information flow, you could be sitting in this room and literally while I'm speaking, texting somebody in Singapore or in China and having a conversation with them. And you have this amazing information connectivity. And in that very context, we're not alone as we think about rescue. Philip Jenkins speaks about something called the Global South. South of the equator, in, in the Latino world, the Americas, Africa, parts of Asia, there is a growing wellspring of missional impulse by our brothers and sisters in those particular parts of the world. So we are not alone in this effort to consider the issue of rescue. And then we certainly remind ourselves we're back here in the North American context you know, in a culture like ours, they, 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 our culture has a fairly significant investment in this word, don't they? Uh, when, when you think of the, the, our, our doctrine, if you will, of, of pluralism and, and how in a culture like ours, we're, we're swimming against the stream that says all paths are legitimate and viable options to find God. And then out of that comes this real deep suspicion for certainty and for truth, for something like the Bible, for something like our conclusions that we would draw here on the issue of rescue. I think it's a great topic. I think we in the faith have something to say to this, and I would like to spend some time. My, my, my theme for today with rescue is going to be Operation Obey. It's an interesting word for us in the faith, and I, I'm going to get to it in passage number two. But would you join me right now in prayer as we ask God's help and enablement in the study of the Scriptures 
and in listening intently together to ultimately become not just hearers of the Word, but also doers. Let's pray together. Father, wonderful worship, an amazing setting in this auditorium, and you are at work in so many hearts. Father, grant to me enablement to communicate truth, truth from your word to these dear men and women and transform our hearts together as we have sung, Lord, consume us, consume me with the truths of your heart and transform us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Did you bring your Bibles? Acts chapter 1. Join me there. A couple of years ago, I was speaking at a Bible school here in North America, and a student sent me an email after the conference. I'd spoken a number of times there. And, and the student asked this question, Jim, are you the real deal? And I was really challenged by his email. Brooke went on to say that he has been involved in church and, and Christian ministry and life, and he has been hurt by spiritual leaders. And he said, you know, as a student, Jim, I don't have a great deal of discernment, and I, I heard what you had to say, and it spoke to my heart, but I have a question for you. Are you the real deal? Now, I, I don't know how you would respond to that, but that would challenge a man's heart, wouldn't it? That would probably challenge a woman's heart. And I want to walk through a particular passage of Scripture, and I want to think about being the real deal from the vantage point of when you think of rescue, I want to ask the question, who are the rescuers? Who are the rescuers? Jesus is going to speak to us to this particular point right here in Acts chapter 1, and I think we're going to be surprised at the answer to the question, who are the rescuers to rescue those in need of rescue? Acts chapter 1, let's pick it up in verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. While they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky, this same Jesus, 
who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Post-resurrection, pre-ascension, 40 days, Jesus is speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And that's the conversation that's taking place. In that context, the disciples asked the question that down through the years, folks like Martin Luther and others have rebuked the disciples for asking, Lord, is it at this time then you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I don't think I would rebuke the disciples for asking that question. I probably, if given the same context, I would have asked the very same thing myself. I would have wanted to know that too. And Jesus answers and says, it's not for you to know the times, the chronos, the chronological developments, the times and the dates, the kairos, the major epic moments, the the kairos moments in God's redemptive historical plan has all been left in the hands of the Father. But, and then Jesus is going to move on to, to direct their attention into the present tense. And what I find fascinating about a passage like this Isn't it interesting that the the question that the disciples asked to Jesus gets left unanswered for 2,000 years? How do we respond when heaven is silent to the questions that lurk deep in our soul? How do we respond? when heaven is silent to the questions, the burdens, the concerns, the cries of our very heart, and heaven does not give us any answers. In fact, heaven is silent. What do we do? It's interesting, in in a passage like this, Jesus comes speaking about the kingdom. The disciples are trying to filter it. They have just gone through shock, haven't they? They have, they have betrayed their very Lord. There's this this convolution taking place inside their hearts. They're they're thinking about this kingdom topic, the gift of the Spirit. The the Spirit's going to be coming to them. And then the disciples are trying to think about, well, we thought you were coming with a kingdom that you were going to come and you were going to punch Rome in the nose and you were going to set up your kingdom. And so they ask, are are, are you then going to set up the, the political kingdom that we thought was coming? Now, they didn't ask it here, but I think there was a subplot. There was a sub-question that they probably also wanted to ask. It was the question that they kept asking one another, and you saw it way back in Luke chapter 9. You remember that question? Their favorite topic of discussion was, who is going to be greatest in the kingdom? Stated another way, who gets to sit on the right hand and who gets to sit on the left hand? I think that was probably part of the mix here. And so that their motives are all convoluted. They they flunked a test big time in betraying their very Lord. Jesus, listening to them, does not answer the question and the cry of their heart. And he leaves it go unanswered for 2,000 years. And there's such a tendency and a danger in the faith when God doesn't show up the way we expect Him to, the way we want Him to, when God doesn't show up the way we want Him to, we check out on the faith. We want to make God feel bad. We distance ourselves from God. And in converse to waiting for answers to the deep issues of your heart and of my heart, notice what Jesus says in in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but... 
And I think what Jesus is saying is, wherever you are at any moment in space, time, and history, wherever you are, be all there. And while you are there, Jesus is saying, go on the offensive. Now notice what he says there in verse 8 again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now I just set the backdrop of the passage to say this one important point. In this passage, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and unto the uttermost parts of the world. Simple little Greek particles, tekai, in English, both and. It connotes the idea of simultaneously. Simultaneously, Jesus wants us to be both in Jerusalem and unto the uttermost parts of the world. And I find it fascinating that the only way that that can be accomplished, implicit in what Jesus is telling his disciples and us, is that it is a community project. It's only in community that we can be about the business of being both here and there for Jesus simultaneously. And guess who Jesus is asking to engage in this very enterprise? Disciples who had flunked the test big time. They had betrayed their Lord, they were, they were convoluted on their motives, they were confused about the kingdom, they were almost ready to check out, and Jesus bids them come into this enterprise. If you were Jesus, knowing the backdrop of what the disciples had just gone through and their motives, would you have selected them? Maybe stated another way, you knowing you. Would you have selected you? And I want to suggest to us, brothers and sisters, that this is a community project, but not the community of the have-it-togethers. This is not the community of the have-it-togethers. Jesus is bidding the community of the not-to-have-it-togethers. The disciples, so convoluted, so mixed in their motives and their understanding of God at work in the world, Jesus is still willing and pleased to use them. And I challenge us, I bid us as these fellow rescuers on this journey of life and faith that we too are invited into the very process even in our imperfection. And I wonder if we do a disservice to the world. And I wonder if some of the rebuke against us in the faith from the world isn't justified because sometimes we communicate that we have it all together and we really don't. We are not the community of the have-it-togethers. We're the community of the not-to-have-it-togethers that Jesus wants to infuse with his power and bless and break. And the context of rescuing then comes from fellow travelers with as much in the measure of humility as God gives to us. We enter into the world as this community full of mixed motives. Sometimes in my best days of ministry, my motives are still mixed, and Jesus is still pleased to use me. That's the amazing thing about the faith. As we enter into the world, brothers and sisters, I challenge us to go together on our knees in the measure of humility with the towel wrapped around our arms in the community of the not-to-have-it-togethers. That is a powerful, apologetic to the world. In other words, brothers and sisters, while you're studying here 
and you're getting some excellent degrees and you're working toward competence and skill development, keep in mind at the core of your heart is a man and a woman redeemed by Jesus walking the journey of faith in great measures of humility. Some of you have had the privilege, I believe, to be down in Haiti at the House of Hope, which is in Port-au-Pay, north of Port-au-Prince. And there you would have met Jenny. And Jenny is from North America, and she partners with Linda, a Haitian sister, in the House of Hope with all of these orphans. And they have orphans who start at uh, age uh, of infant all the way up to about 16, 17, and 18. And Jenny one day got this idea while she's working with, in this orphanage with these kids, she took the early teenagers and began to teach them basic truths of Scripture. And then on given weekends, Jenny and Linda send these dear orphans back into their home districts for a weekend where they take the truths of the Word of God and they teach their families about God. Can you see a 13-year-old being transformed by Jesus, the one who needed to be rescued, redeemed, transformed, is now a rescuer? And Jenny writes and tells about the stories when the kids come back to see the transformation where these little precious kids are leading adults, moms and dads, to Jesus Christ. It's an amazing army of the community of the not-to-have-it-togethers. These are the rescuers that Jesus is pleased to take and use. And so I bid you, brothers and sisters, while you're, you're striving toward competence, continue the journey on your knees with a towel wrapped around your arms. The world can't speak against that level of love and humility. Let's jump over, please, to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. This community, this amazing community project, that speaks to the issue of who. Now I just want to take a moment and speak to the thought of this idea of rescue with the question, how? How do we go about the business of being in the rescue business? Matthew chapter 28, look at verse 16, this Great Commission portion. Then the eleven disciples, 28, 16, went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. You ever been there? One moment you have this great season of worship and your spirit and faith is strengthened and the next moment you find yourself doubting Jesus. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority, this authority from the Father in heaven on earth has been given to me on the basis of that exousia, this, this legal title deed given by the Father to the Son. The Son now dispenses to His followers to represent Him in His affairs related to His kingdom in His absence until He comes back. It is that authority, that authorization, on the basis of that, Jesus says, go and make disciples. 
You, you remember the wonderful days. Uh, how many of us were privileged to spend about three years in grade three learning verbs? And you finally figure out there's a verb in a couple of participles. And here, the main verb, the point of this passage is we are disciple makers. We are called because of the promise given to us of the Spirit's presence. We are called to make disciples literally of all nations. And how do we do that? Jesus tells us, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then number two, verse 20. And here's the point I want to anchor in on for a moment. And teaching them to, say it with me, teaching them to, oh, an amazing word in American vocabulary, isn't it? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. From an American cultural context, we are a fiercely independent people. In our independence, we demand our rights. It, it is of such a nature that on a yearly average, we commit lawsuits against one another to the tune of about 90 million a year. So when you offend me, my first reaction is to dial up 1-900, where's my lawyer? I'm going to sue you. In the midst of that broader cultural backdrop, you and I swimming countercultural against that stream are invited into a command of a word that just doesn't resonate well here in America, and it's the word obedience. Operation Obey. So the context for my appreciation for this word, my wife Sterling and I, we were serving with our colleagues in the Philippines. And our third church planning assignment amongst the professionals in our capital city, Sterling and I would be out about four nights a week in Bible studies. And we would have the gals watch, a couple of gals watch our kids each night, and Sterling and I would get on our motorcycle, and we would drive into the city, and we would hold these Bible studies. And I would have the kids take a look at Dad as we were getting ready to go. And I would say, kids, we want you to obey Ati Yuli and Ati Selsa. And then we would leave, and we would get home only to discover that our kids didn't obey Ati Yuli and Ati Selsa. And I would look at the kids and I would say, kids, why didn't you obey Ati Yuli and Ati Selsa? And invariably they would say this, Dad, we didn't know. And I would look at them and I would say, I told you. And they would say, Dad, we didn't hear it. And so... What I would have to do is, we're getting ready to go out again, I would say, kids, look at dad's eyes. And then they would look at me, and I would say, kids, mom and dad are going out, operation, oh. And you know what the kids would do? Kelly, Shauna, Shane, Tiffany, they would look at me and then they would look away. They felt like as long as they didn't look at dad's eyes, they weren't responsible for what dad commanded them to do. And I thought, who taught them that? They didn't get that from their father, their mother. Yeah, mama, it's your fault. And I would have the kids look at me, and I would say, kids, repeat after dad. Operation O. And they go through these contortions, literally go through contortions. Oh, 
And then they would look away. Bay. Kids, look at Dad. Operation O. Bay. No, 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 kids. Look at Dad's eyes. Look at Dad's eyes. And they look at me and they say, all right, kids, follow Dad. Operation O. Bay. And the next part, with a good attitude. Kids, look at Dad. Look at Dad in the eyes. All right, kids, say it with Dad. Operation O. Bay. With a good attitude. And then I knew the kids had heard me. Don't you feel like sometimes that's just what Jesus wants to do? He wants to, he wants to get us to focus in. We're called to this amazing task of rescue. And do you know how we rescue people? By discipling the nations through the means of calling them to obey the very commands of the master. Do you call one another to the obedience of the master Jesus? In terms of discipleship, discipleship curriculum and our philosophy of understanding here in America, our approach to discipleship is to pass on information. That, that's, that's what we do here. We, we pass on information. We are very poor and low on calling one another to the obedience of the Master Jesus. And brothers and sisters, this is a community project. We call one another to obedience to the Master, and we go to the nations doing the same thing, calling the peoples of the world with us to a journey of obedience to our Master, the Lord Jesus. That's our task. Disciple the nations through the means of baptizing and calling them to, oh, say it with me, bay. Look at your neighbor and say, Operation Obey. Look at your neighbor. Wake him up. Operation Obey. All right, now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back and look at him again, put your finger in their face and say, with a good attitude. All right, so, now I'm in my... Sterling and I are in our second church planning assignment. We're on the island of Bohol, central region of the Philippines. Our ministry is taking us outside uh, of the capital city. We're in a town. Bible studies are exploding all over the place. A man named Bibi comes down out of the mountains. We're, we're in this beautiful fishing village in, in, in the, what's called the Poblacion, the center of town, and the municipality there was this burial up, way up in the mountains, and the man comes down and says, Jim, would you come to our burial to bring the words of God, he said. And I said, Bibi, I would love to. I've come all this way, 10,000 miles, to do this very thing. But there's a couple of things that have to take place first. Number one, you've got to go to the Brongai captain for permission. Number two, you've got to invite the barrio to the Bible study. Number three, and this is what they always thought because they paid their religious leaders. I said, you've got to pay me. And he said, how much? And I said, you've got to pay me a Coca-Cola every visit and a piece of bread. Okay, we can do that. And I began this amazing Bible study. And oftentimes I would take the people from the down in the town area with me. If there was a lot of us, we would walk up into the mountains for the weekend, and then we would have the Bible study up there and we'd come back home. If it was just Harry and me, Harry and I would go on up into the mountains together, and then we would come back down. Harry was a simple farmer. He was from a very remote village. He had gotten saved hearing the gospel the very first time, 
that it came to that town. And Harry began studies of Scripture with me all the time we were together. And we would go on up into those Bible studies and come back, go on up into those Bible studies and come back, and Harry would be with me repeatedly. The religious leader in our town was very alarmed by the growth of these Bible studies and this movement of faith that was beginning to percolate. And he uttered one word to the community, Dayong. It scared the entire community. And so they, they, uh, they fled the study. Dayong means death burial organization. And in their religious tradition, they are afraid that if they're not buried in the, in the, in the cemetery, the, the, the municipal cemetery, they'll be buried in the, in the crazy cemetery. It's called the Buang Buang. And if they're buried there, no one will pray them out of purgatory. And they're afraid. After three months of studies there, Harry and I are together, and Bibi looks at me and he says, Jim, don't come back to our study anymore. After three months of building foundational understandings of Jesus and faith and the cross of Jesus and to rescue them from their sin, they said no. And I'm coming down the hill. I'm on my motorcycle that day. It's a steep incline. I have my sunglasses on, and I'm crying. And sitting right behind me on the motorcycle coming down is Harry. And I just realized an entire barrio had turned their back on Jesus. And then the thought came to my mind, I wonder how Harry is going to be able to respond to this. About the middle of the trip down, Harry taps me on the shoulder and he says this, Bisang kinsa ang tao, Denis Kalibutan, ang magasalikway sa atong ginoong Jesu Christu, bisang ako lamang ang nagapabilin Denis Kalibutan, ako ang magasunod kaniya. And my tears turned to tears of joy. Harry said, Jim, though all the world reject Jesus, I will follow him. I needed that. I needed to hear that. And what's interesting about that is here's a simple farmer discipling me, discipling my heart, pouring into me obedience to Jesus Christ. Operation Obey with a good attitude. No matter what course of study you are involved in, Jesus bids you into a movement of rescuers, what Eugene Peterson calls the community of the lost and the found. We are the community of the lost and the found. We are the community of the not to have it togethers. We are mobilizing together on our knees calling people, the peoples from the flags of the nations, to become followers of Jesus through the means of obeying the very commands of the Master. What could God do with a room full of men and women who have given their hearts to Jesus calling one another to obey, calling one another to be the community of the not-to-have-it-togethers, and we march together to serve and to share and to bless the peoples of the world in the grand project of the ages, the redemption of peoples. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, I, I, I can't imagine, Lord, what you see looking into this room on this day. Father, you see so many mixed motives. You, you, you see so much confusion. But somehow, God, you are so pleased to even break through that confusion and use us in this grand story of helping to rescue peoples in need. Oh, God, speak to hearts. May we be a transformed people. May the great missional impulse be sustained for the days to come because we have met here this week to think about rescue. Thank you in Jesus' name.